0: Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your composer host, Charlie McCarran, and this podcast is my way of sharing advice from all sorts of creative music makers. Over 100 interviews are available for free at ComposerQuest.com, or you can subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. In this episode, we get to hear from a young composer making his way out in L.A. Alex Ruger has been scoring a bunch of films and rescoring classic Hollywood films just for fun. He likes the challenge of coming up with score for scenes that, as he puts it, really weren't meant to have music, like the intense Hal versus Dave scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Alex has a pretty amazing day job. Some days he works for the legendary Danny Elfman, and other days he works for the prominent video game composer Enon Zur. He talks a bit about how he got those gigs and what he's learned from them. Before we get into my talk with Alex, I have a patron announcement. Jake Reed has just joined the club. Jake's a young guy diving into music theory and currently obsessed with the minimalist piece Tubular Bells. So Jake, thanks for helping support the podcast. If you've also been enjoying this podcast and feel like contributing, visit composerquest.com slash patron for details. It would make my day to see your name pop up as a new patron. Now, let's get on to my talk with Alex Ruger. Alex, thank you for coming on Quest here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So I've been listening to your podcast, Uncomposed. Oh, yes, that's, yes. That's really fun. Yeah. I Yeah, I, I had a four-hour drive to Iowa, so <laughs> I listened to your first episode, which is oh, the most ridiculously long <laughs> and somehow still engaging podcast episode. Yeah.
1: No that was that was hilarious, and the, the funny thing about it was like we, we didn't even notice that all the time went by. like when we were done, we were like, "How long was that? Like an hour and a half, maybe two hours, We are like, "Oh wow,
0: It was a Lord of the Rings film." And <laughs> we, uh, beyond and, the extended yeah, and so, edition, even. Right.: I think my favorite part of that four hour episode was when you were talking about the Lord of the Rings score. Oh, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> I <love> that score, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's awesome uh, that you can just bring what, that up. What was I? What was I saying about that? There
1: was. Uh, uh,
0: I think he was talking was, about like the different modes that. Yeah,
1: yeah, and all of the. Oh yeah, I remember one thing was uh, how the two themes for uh, Rohan and Gondor are built. They they don't have the same chord progression, but they have the same chords, and they're just kind of switched around a little bit. Um, which i thought was really cool they they kind of like sort of fit together like the two two sides of the same coin sort of
0: hmm.
1: um yeah man i i love that score it's endlessly brilliant
0: yeah yeah and the i think you're also explaining like the wood elves or and the uh, other yeah. different kinds of elves have yeah what did they what's the mode well the
1: the cool thing i i don't know like if Howard Shore was actually thinking this when he wrote it, but um, I like how he sat on just a single pedal tone and just did different modes over that pedal, which is kind of how, like, a a lot of Greek music was, you know, kind of like the original modal music. A lot of it was built around that same idea, and so there's the, like... that one's just kind of that, you know, like what, what would that be? Phrygian dominant. Um, uh, but then my, my favorite elf music part is, uh, in fellowship when Sam and Frodo are like, they just begun on their journey. And, uh, there's like one evening when they, when they see the wood elves leaving for the Grey havens and, uh, the, the vocal music that they're singing there is just beautiful. And it's like, So it goes like between uh yeah. you know natural minor and and major um, oh. it's just so so beautiful, and the of course, the elven language is just incredible so yeah i'm a I'm a total geek for both <laughs> Tolkien and that score. I, just, I love it yeah,
0: you should start a uh, sub podcast just dedicated <laughs> to that yeah
1: i could i could do it oh man just do it like cue by cue yeah break down every single cue and just make it like a like a six year long journey and just yeah
0: (laughs) yeah it seems like you're just a catalog of film scores and composer techniques from films because like i don't listen
1: to a lot of them (laughs) yeah
0: i was looking at your rescoring um for different films and I really, really appreciated the inception one, but oh, it's yeah, kind of like, that a... was,
1: that was like my, my take on if Hans Zimmer and John Powell and Don Davis all like they, they had an illegitimate love child and they, that, that was what I was hoping the score would sound like. Yeah. Don Davis who did the yeah, matrix, the matrix. For... And then John Powell, I, I kind of stole, I mean, he's done a lot of great work uh, and he kind of gets pigeonholed actually, but, uh, I, I stole from what he is pigeonholed as, which is the born identity guy. Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. That was uh, for one of my senior projects at at Berkeley. The
0: other one that I thought was interesting was your saving private Ryan. Uh, oh man. The beach scene. Yeah. Oh God. I forgot about that. Yeah. And it's interesting in your notes, how you talk about how both John Williams and Steven Spielberg agreed that there shouldn't be music, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I yet- agree. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those scenes where like, you know, half the people will just leave the theater. Cause uh, it's not even just how disturbing it is, but also it's just that powerful and that real. Mm-hmm. and any sort of music that you add to, to a scene like that instantly makes it feel contrived. And, uh, I mean, there's tons of examples like that. Like, uh, well, another movie that I rescored, well, not the whole movie, but the scene was uh, from 2001. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I mean, that, that film does have music in it, but there's, like, crazy long stretches of no music. And then things like, you know, No Country for Old Men, which I, I plan on actually doing a rescore of, Mm, um, cool. Again, yeah, I'm, I'm not even rescoring things. I don't know why I'm calling it a rescore, because I'm not <laughs> <There's>, actually rescoring. <laughs> I'm yeah. Just, I'm just finding things with, with no music. But, but the, I mean, they're, they're interesting challenges. Yeah. There's, you know, there's, there's, in all of those examples, the best possible way to score it is to not score it. And um, with Saving Private Ryan, the only emotion that made sense to, I guess, underline is not you can't do like the heroic aspect cuz it's like we're not witnessing yeah. heroics we're witnessing like kids who are scared out of their minds uh, which i i guess is a form of heroism but it's not it's not the you know standard cinematic like you know luke skywalker like swinging over the the thing yeah. in a new hope sort of heroism it's it's not like that it's it's like real and yeah. I couldn't do even the military aspect, uh, which I, I kind of touched on in it, but towards um, the, the end
0: Yeah. but yeah, it came in so subtly and right. I like barely noticed that it was like the snare drum coming right. in I thought it worked actually really well yeah, at that point. Thanks.
1: Yeah, the and actually the part that I was thinking was sort of military-esque was actually kind of a twisted version of it, and I was actually, I was kind of blatantly ripping off of um, Charles Ives, the the unanswered question, um, oh, with, uh, with when the when they're underwater. With the, yeah, the trumpet part is yeah. is extremely just total rip off. Um, <laughs> basically had to be almost like a horror film. And of course, you you can't go like full horror because then still it's contrived and stupid and doesn't work. But everyone there is truly terrified to a degree that most people don't ever even experience, thankfully. At that point, I was pretty much brand new to scoring. I think that was the second thing I ever scored.
0: Wow. And
1: every movie that you score, definitely, it puts you in a mood, of course. I mean, not to the degree of like like Daniel Day-Lewis actors who live their role, uh, but when you score a sad movie while you're doing it, you might be a little sadder than usual, you know, S- something like that. And that scene for like the week that I did it just me up (laughs) like because i was just watching the most realistic version of people dying over and over and over yeah i mean the most important lesson from that was like that that even happens because before i did it i didn't realize that that's a thing that happens while you while you score something
0: that's a sign of a good film though if even after that many times of watching it you're not
1: known to it yeah
0: yeah well, I liked how your music, there was, like, chunks of music, then rest, and then... Right, At, right. at the beginning, anyways. And yeah, I did the... And then long spaces...
1: My teacher Mason Darian he's a veteran composer in his own right he's he's incredible and uh, he really hammered into me that that score had to be not understated because if it's too understated then it doesn't really justify it being there it's kind of like a person with social anxiety it kind of gives that that feeling of like not feeling like it belongs but um that particular intro, the kind of repeated over and over sort of one big note, um, I, I remember my first version it had way more of that because I was really into what that made that scene feel like. It felt really cool to me, but I, I was probably writing about twice as much music before he he just chipped away at it. And and I remember for that particular scene, he kind of just sat me down and for each little bomb bomb. Sort of thing that happens. He he'd go. Okay, that one stays. Okay, that one goes.
0: Hmm. That one goes. What were the indications like? Why were certain ones staying? Um, Was it like emotional cues in in the I, actors or? I not really with that particular part. I mean, if if
1: no one knows what scene we're talking about, it's uh yeah, very beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Well, not very beginning, but like ten minutes in. As the D-Day scene, and um, this particular part is when it shows like the the beach, and it shows all of the the metal things on the beach, and then it cuts to the boats coming up to the the shore. And um, it's hard to actually put a concrete like this is why this works, and this is why this doesn't sort of reasoning to the timing of those. Hits um, and that actually kind of ra- raises a larger question with film scoring, which is, um, I don't. You yeah. just kind of have to feel it, I guess. It, it, there's there's only so much studying that you can do of drama and how things work dramatically. Because after that, it's just after so much studying, it's just feeling and just this works because it works. It kind of is a self evident thing, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah it's a. It's a good question. Like if you do that thing where you pause and then bring music back in, it's almost like if it's too matched up with the scene somehow, it would be too on the nose and uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It'd be like, it'd be like a guy who over talks during a conversation.
1: (laughs) Just like, just, just too much. Like, like, yeah, man, I get what you're saying. Just you know, chill out, sort of thing, Um and yeah, with with that scene in particular, and scenes like it, there's a very fine line between too little and too much. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I watched your 2001 Space Odyssey. That was re- fun. Rescore because yeah. that's one of my favorite movies ever. And oh, me too. At first, I was like, oh man, should there be score here? But <gasps> actually, yeah, by the end of it, I felt like I appreciated it cuz you get in the the headspace. Of right. Dave. Right. Which you don't really as much. He you do a little bit in 2001, but I don't know. He's well, kind of like a all the I characters mean, are kind of like
1: Yeah. Yeah, that that particular rescore was kind of weird. It was like I was trying to do something that felt like it belonged for the time period. I even kinda mixed it in a way that made it feel right. Like the yeah. like the strings in particular kinda actually very much sound like they were, you know, recorded on tape and are just kinda old. At the same time, I I just seen Gravity, oh, and yeah. uh, Stephen Price's score to that is just so cool. I I love it, so I was kind of doing a mashup of the two, which I think it worked, but it just took a lot of time to hone it in and make it feel right. But um, first of all, I'll say definitely the right call in the original film to not put music there. <laughs> uh, yeah, same just the same deal. Like that scene is just so. I mean, that whole yeah. movie is just so quiet and just awesome. It's so terrifying. But the, right? Yeah.
0: What? But the sound effects when there's no music are so amplified. Like right. when the emergency oh, yeah. noises it's just come beep, on. Beep, then beep, Just yeah.
1: over and over and over. Yeah. And um, it's funny you mention that because I, I wanted to actually use those as a kind of part of the score. But I, I consciously stayed away from using synths because, I, I, I don't know, there, there's something creepier about a, an orchestra played mm. weirdly than using any sort of electronic elements. And uh, that's a cue that I've taken from uh, Johnny Greenwood with his work, especially on uh, there will be blood. I, I oh, love that. Story. Yeah. Oh, that's so uh, good. Oh yeah. The, <laughs> and,
0: uh, oh man. Every scene that has music in it, the the music is like another character almost, or yeah. it's like totally Actually, changes the, the mood
1: the way that I've described it before is that it has this feeling of almost not fitting the film. Yeah. Um, for the first, like, like, well, that very opening shot of the film where it's like, the big wide shot and it's the, and the, it's the strings coming together, doing like the THX logo sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um And that, that cue fits perfectly. And then I, I remember like, a lot of the cues where it's like the dun 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 like the pit string parts, and a lot of those just felt like they were kind of like way too heavy-handed. But then, I mean, you have a lot of time to acclimate to anything in that movie because it's what like three hours long. So, like by by the end of the movie, though, I was just totally into it because it's kind of like he instead of writing to the film, he just wrote a thing that was in the same headspace as Daniel Day-Lewis's character and then just forced it to fit the film. It was like, no, you you you're, you're, you're going to work. You you're, you're going to work <laughs> no matter what. Um, we're we're going to make this score and this and this film work together. And it like 9 times out of 10 that just totally would not work at all, but because of what that film was going for and just how uncomfortable and just uh, I, I don't know. It's just it's a weird, awesome movie, and it, it it just is a perfect, perfect way to go. I don't think anything else would have worked.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was listening to your score for Dead Metaphors. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It's cool, interesting because it's like mostly three or so kind of themes.
1: Yeah. There's like the guitar part. um. And it's, I mean, really simple, but when you play it on a really reverbed out electric guitar, it sounds fantastic. movie is about this reclusive writer there's a journalist who who wants to find out more and it starts out as a story and then becomes a little more personal and then i don't want to give away the indian or anything but it's funny we, we actually took a lot of inspiration from johnny greenwood not in particular like any any sort of score but just more of a general vibe that he mm-hmm. has of um he just has this sort of like unsettling feel to his scores. And, and so we wanted to really underline the loneliness of the character and how isolated he is. And so we decided to record with the string quartet to to get that Johnny Greenwood sort of yeah. like feel. Cause I, I mean, yeah, just string quartets are so cool. Cause they're I just love how you can you can hear like every little out of tuneness and you it's you can like hear the rosin scratch and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just it's such a cool sound and uh and so then there's that um played on the piano. it's a really warm, dark, sort of reverbed out piano.
0: favorite part uh is around the, the second half of prodigious literary output yes that what chords are going on there if you remember
1: the part with the solo cello yeah It's in, it's been a couple months, but if it was in like E minor, it would be holding a high high G, and the piano is going, and so the, the cello is. Yeah. And then it has a little uh, middle line. So that's basically just going uh, E minor to E flat major to E flat minor. Um, and the melody is just following the, the third of the two chords.
0: Yeah, that is like the saddest chord progression. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I right? I like it. Um, yeah, it's, it's all over Lord of the Rings oh nice um, yeah i was wondering yeah. it reminded me of something but I think... yeah
1: um a, a cool trick that that i picked up from that score is just just minor chords everywhere <laughs> like <laughs> like moved in any direction is yeah. is like most of when frodo and sam are in mordor yeah um
0: <laughs> a radiohead thing too yeah oh, like yeah, lots totally. of strange minor chord transitions yeah
1: yeah like um Minor chords moved in major third increments yes. is very much, very much a that sort of thing. Actually, I mean the the Imperial March in Star Wars does the same thing. It goes minor one down to uh, minor six, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's cool because it's like it's kind of kind of resolving back to the one. Like if you're in C minor down to A flat minor, like you have the B going up to C when you go back to C minor, and you have the A flat going down to G. And so you definitely have sort of a cadence, sort of movement, but it's it's still just really nice and disjointed and cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a sound I really like. Um, I think I might actually lean on it a little bit too much sometimes, but I guess that's how we gain our voices as composers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just repeat ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean that that score was super cool. And actually, on December fifth in L.A. Uh, I'm going to be performing that score two picture, uh, Ooh, cool. Uh, at a, at a really cool film festival that a friend of mine started, which is called Arcovert Arco, like the bow, um, mm. thing. And then, uh, vert. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be a really, really cool time. Um, we have, a 20 piece orchestra. Cool. And I'm going to be conducting without a click
0: and that's going to be terrifying. Nice. <laughs> Actually, we did that uh, through this podcast this summer. We had a big... No way. Yeah, we, I challenged composers to write film scores, and my friend runs a video-making group, so she challenged filmmakers to make short films, so we had this huge collaboration and then... Oh, that's awesome. ...an 18-piece group. Uh, yeah, no click, um, but we it worked. We had a really good conductor. Yeah, so.
1: I've, I've done it before... I had a really great conducting class at Berkeley where it was was conducting to film, and we did it all without a click, of course, um, using like punchers and streamers and stuff uh, for timing. So I'm going to actually have to put together a video of my own like that for uh, the performance. And then there was a, when I was at Berkeley, like one of my senior projects was uh, just writing a piece for orchestra. It's up on my SoundCloud and it's called uh, Christmas 1914 in No Man's Land. session of that piece is the only time that i have recorded an orchestra without a click and it was such a it's so terrifying it's so cool though it's like you're you're in control of this massive force yeah and (laughs) and any any little movement of your wrist is going to make something happen yeah and uh it's 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 very strange you feel very naked on (laughs) on the podium
0: yeah that's a skill I did take a semester of conducting, but I, I feel like it would take a really long time to get actually good at it. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. It is, it is, in my opinion, the hardest thing in music, like out, at all, like out of any other thing that you can do, out of performing or composing or anything. I think, at least in my experience, conducting is the hardest because, I mean, even for, you know, that, that piece that I recorded that was, what, like five minutes long or whatever uh, I mean that was very difficult and then you see people like Leonard Bernstein you know conducting without a score <laughs> these hour-long pieces multiple hour-long pieces you know yeah all the time and it's it's this and it's knowing incredible. where every
0: cue comes in I'm right
1: sure. I got to know the Indianapolis Orchestra's uh, conductor Christoph Urbanski is his name, and he's just amazing. And in addition to performing without a score, he rehearses without a score, and it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Like I remember at one point, he's like, uh, "Flute two at bar four hundred and eighty-six, uh, beat two should have been uh, like slurred instead of like like <laughs> oh, really I tiny did. little things." Where I was like, "Who is this guy?"
0: Does he Not have possible. photographic memory, or, or I
1: what, didn't actually maybe? ask him, but I don't know. He must, or maybe he just he just knows the music that well. I I don't know. Yeah. It was it was something else though. It was it was really incredible to see. Cool.
0: Maybe we could talk a little film composing business. Like Ooh. what what is your <laughs> average day? I mean, is um, this like your day job sort of thing, or?
1: Well, my day job at the moment, I work for two composers. Uh I spend most of my days working for Danny Elfman. And then awesome. uh yeah, it's it's cool. Um he's it's weird. He's he's been one of my favorites my whole life. So uh wow. yeah. Great guy, really, really, really cool to work for. Um and then another one is Enon Zur, who I do a lot of tech work and stuff for. Um also, a awesome. really great guy they're they're yeah. both fantastic to work for and uh so that's give or take my nine to five hours, probably closer to like eleven to six because I try and avoid traffic in l a um, <laughs> but uh so in the morning before I go in, I'm sending emails lots of emails i'm usually just sending out emails to get gigs i you know search around online on. Filmmaker forums and job posting sites and stuff, and I've been really, really been wanting to uh, dip my toes into the games. Uh, people like, if you're not familiar with Ian on Zur, he did Fallout. He's a really big name in the in the game world, and uh, being around him has just made me really want to do some games. Um, what kind it's of completely,
0: completely different
1: philosophy from film?
0: Yeah, what have you been picking up from him, like? Composing. Oh God! Um,
1: the number one thing that I picked up from Enon is writing very fast. Um, I mean, with both Danny and Enon, I don't know how much they'd want me to talk about them, uh, so I can't oh. get too <laughs> sure. heavily into it. Um, but I, I, I will. I mean, I'm sure Enon wouldn't complain about me saying that he's a fast writer, and <laughs> I, I mean, he he's he's incredible. I mean, he can. You know, he'll have been developing some themes and stuff for a little while. And then he's like, OK, I need to come up with some exploration music for this one level. And he just he whips it out so fast. And it's so good because um I would say to younger composers, you know, you have to be a very fast composer in this business, very fast. And it still has to be perfect, like great music. And what I've done is I've focused on writing the best possible music and not worrying about how fast I am. I just, I have to make the deadline. That's number one, but I don't go faster than I have to because then quality will suffer. And of course, I'm sure every composer thinks the same way, but as you write more, your speed increases, you filter out bad ideas before you develop them too much you know, you can see what the piece is gonna be as you're developing it slowly, like in its in its beginning stages, sort of like composition precognition sort of thing. Um and I, I've definitely seen that develop in my own life, but seeing someone like Enon who is late forties or early fifties, I forget exactly how old he is, but he's I mean, he's been doing this for decades longer than I have. And it's just incredible to see someone who who has just evolved along that line and is just so fast. Uh, I'm putting together a sample library right now for, for Enon. Uh, oh, so cool. I just started that yesterday.
0: And what goes so, into that? Like what are you, <laughs> what kind of samples?
1: Um, this is kind of a collection of samples that he's recorded himself uh, over the years. And now it's like, instead of, you know, just importing the audio into his DAW, it's like we'd like to make them like contact instruments or something so that you can just more easily write with them. A lot of it's like bowed stuff, bowed guitar, just kind of weird, cool things that you can't normally find. And, you know, he's not very likely to record a string sample library. So it's like something that you can actually do and put together. And, you know, it's your own sounds that you made.
0: Cool. I remember hearing that you did a, sample library out of vegetables yeah (laughs) (laughs) as percussion Um, or something yeah
1: that that uh man actually it sucks the the hard drive that was on that uh crashed and I lost all of it oh Uh, no I know it's sad and it's the one drive that I didn't have backed up I'm usually so anal about I I have like of my work drive I have like three backups of it like I'm just every day backed up um, but yeah, I, I wanted to try my hand at making a library, and so I uh, went to a market and bought all of the cheapest, nastiest vegetables and fruit that I could find so that I didn't spend too much money, and then I, um, I covered my SM57 with a condom <laughs> <laughs> so that I didn't get juice all over it, and uh, then I just experimented. So I bought like five of each. And I, I made, like, a little house out of, like, cardboard and newspaper so that I didn't get juices everywhere. And I just tried squishing stuff. Like, I, I, I squished a tomato with a hammer and broke celery in front of the mic, which is a really cool snare sound. Um, and just tons of stuff. I mean, there was this one fruit called an ugly fruit. Like I'm dead serious, it's called an <laughs> ugly fruit and it's it's it seriously is like the ugliest fruit you've ever seen. It's the most apt name, but it's hilarious that that's its actual name. Did and you that try one eating was, it? Uh I did. Actually It tasted great. But I, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I took uh let's see. What did I do with that one? I took a hammer to one of them and it had a really satisfying like thumpy squish. Uh, that was cool for like the weirdest kick you've ever heard. Um, And then I think another one I just like threw on the ground for just a similar thing and recorded that. Um, A lot of them I tried hitting with drumsticks just to see what those sounded like. It it, it ended up being a pretty cool thing. And I mean, in hindsight, you know, if you're going to put together a sample library, it can get really chaotic really fast. There's, you know, just tons and tons of, Samples that you've made, and you have to like make order out of them and think about like, am I going to organize this in like velocity layers or am I going to put it in like one vegetable per octave? Or you know, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's that's I, probably the also, first time you know, that's been said that <laughs> right? sentence, one vegetable per octave, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you can get endlessly deep with it. Uh, like you could make it so that, you know, different velocity layers will instead like, it'll be the same sample, but you can have it like, you know, open up a filter with the harder you, you press the higher, the velocity will like be a super open filter. Or lower yeah. would be super closed or, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of ways that you can put it together. And I think it's best to pretty much plan out all of that before you do it. And I mean, I, I'm, I've done it once and I'm about to do it a second time. Uh, so I, I don't
0: really know what I'm talking about with it,
1: but it's, it was fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At one point we had a harpsichord in our house and I thought that would be a perfect instrument to do a sample library of not. Oh yeah. I'm sure it exists, but it'd be way easier because each note yeah. is just the same volume every time. So
1: right. Right. Um, and actually I know that, uh, um Gautier. Oh. Um he's made a lot of his own uh sampled instruments. I I think one really cool one was he did a dulcimer and then I think another one was like acoustic guitar with mallets, which is an awesome Ooh. sound. It's like it's like a dulcimer but like just a little different. So yeah, he's he's super into that and I I, I really like that idea because if you were to sample like a guitar or something you're going to start writing things that are played differently than that instrument. You know, like if I'm playing a key, uh, acoustic guitar library on a, on a keyboard, then I'm going to be playing keyboardy things instead of guitar things. I'm going to play chord voicings that are impossible to play on a guitar.
0: Yeah. Well, my podcast fans would not forgive me if I didn't ask you a little bit more about <laughs> Danny Elfman. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> what do, What would you say, you've learned since working oh with him? Oh, God.
1: That he's a genius? <laughs> I, <guess.
0: laughs> um,
1: I mean, definitely the, the, a lot of the similar stuff that I said about Enon, you know, just being fast. But the more important thing that I've taken away from it would actually be just, like, understanding what it takes and, like, the quality that you have to produce to be at that level. I mean, the guy's just insane. And I, I've also done, uh, I've hung around with and, and done a lot of uh, like technical work for his orchestrator, Steve Bartek. And I mean, they're, you know, dynamic duo of, of film scores. I mean, Steve is just a genius as well. So basically, it's been kind of a, a constant blowing of my mind.
0: How did you end up getting that gig
1: Um, like most gigs in this business, it was through knowing someone, uh, (laughs) Enon and Danny have the same mixer. Uh, his name is Noah Scott Snyder, just this amazing mix engineer. And, uh, so he was, we were over at Enon's mixing some game score and I, I got to know him pretty well. And, uh, He got to know that I was competent and, you know, could do this. So that was one way that I got to Danny's. There's two other ways. There there was kind of this weird convergence of things that happened. Um, Another one was uh, a good friend of mine invited me to uh, Steve Bartek, the orchestrator, um, invited me to his house because he was having a jam session and I was like, y- yes, <laughs> uh, like, awesome. like also Steve was the guitarist for Oingo Boingo, which is, you know, Danny's old band. That's kind of where wow. he came from. And so and I'm a guitarist. And so I was like, oh, my God, uh, I can play guitar with Steve Bartek. That's the coolest thing. Like, Steve, Steve is another hero of mine. And so I was like, hell, yes, I will go to his house and play guitar and eat lunch and just hang out and I did and it was great and it was just a super fun day and Steve is like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet and we like traded guitar solos on like whole lot of love or something like that and it was, it was so cool and I I mean I was just nerding out and I thought that was the end of it I was like okay that's the one time that I met and like played guitar with Steve Bartek and it's was like okay back to my normal boring life then um around the same time I met with one of the Berkeley Los Angeles alumni coordinator people. Um, her name's Justine and she's awesome. And she looked at my resume and she thought that since moving here, I'd done quite a lot. And so I was someone that she could pitch for this job that had come up over at Danny Elfman's and they, they just needed some extra work over at a studio and same thing. I was like, hell yes, please send <laughs> my resume yeah. over And I really didn't expect anything to happen with it. I really like if you're going to be a film composer in Hollywood, you really need to get used to rejection. Um, Most assistant positions I haven't gotten for one reason or another. Uh, Most films I don't get like this is not me. This is just how it is. This is how it goes. It's a very saturated market and just most things don't happen. And this was the biggest one that I'd applied for yet. And so I was thinking, like, this is no, th- there's no way this is going to happen. Um, and then I got a call from his assistant the next day. And I had actually met her at Steve's. And so she remembered me a little bit, and that, that kind of helped. And then uh, I was over at Enon's a little after that, and I, I told them that, hey, this might actually happen. I'm I heard back from them. And Noah, the mixer that, who also mixes for Danny said, Hey, you know, I'll put in a good word for you. And he did. And that seemed to help. And then like a couple days later I was meeting Danny and it was, it was really cool. So I guess the lesson there for, for uh, emerging composers, I mean, this is something that I have to remind myself a lot is just, you know, just stick with it, I guess. Like, if you had talked to me a week before that and said, Oh yeah. And in a week you're going to be working for, for Danny, I would have thought you were crazy. So (laughs) yeah, you just weird stuff happens (laughs) in in this business and, and it just happens out of the blue too. It happens very quickly. Yeah. Every single person that you meet in this business, like this is the selfish reason to be nice to people. The first reason to be nice to people is to be a good person, because that's good. Um, like please, everyone, just be, you know, nice and cool and be good people just for the sake of that. But also just realize that in this business, everyone you meet probably knows someone that can help you out. And oftentimes they do. Um, I mean, I got hooked up with Enon in a similar way. A friend of mine put together a studio and he needed someone who knew Cubase and I work in Cubase. And so he said, cool, come over. And then there you go. And Hmm. if you're just friends with people, like, yeah, I I guess the the thing that it boils down to is people do things for friends and not network people or colleagues or something like that. Like the best and most successful people are people who just have friends and they do things, you know, like when, when Danny was starting out, him and him and Tim Burton were just, I mean, sure, they started out as a composer-director relationship sort of thing, but they're just friends doing cool stuff. I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas was not this massive phenomenon that it is now when they made it. At the time, it was just this weird thing that they did, and it just happened to become huge. And I think, yeah, the, the real lesson is just like, have friends and do cool things with them. <laughs> you know? And and, and be but and what about be, people be who can't person. make friends? No. <laughs> <laughs> well then that's a bigger problem. <laughs> but uh yeah just you know be be cool. Because I, I can guarantee that you know if, if my friend had invited me over to Enon's or if my friend who invited me to Steve's, if both those times I acted like an idiot I mean, I, neither of those things would have happened. And if I if I had showed up to Enon's thinking like, oh, I know everything or something, then he would have been like, okay, get the hell out of here. And same with <laughs> yeah. Steve's. Like, if I had come over being like, hey man, can I get a gig? Like the the first thing that I said, like, hey, can you give me some work? He would have been like, no.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Leave. You know, like like we're here to be people who are enjoying each other's company, not you know like trying to get gigs and. And I only bring that up just because I've I've seen it quite a bit. And when I was younger, I had that mentality of like, you know, gigs at all costs, sort of thing. Like, hmm. you know, if I was mm-hmm. eighteen and I and I was at Steve's, I would have done that. And that's just it's not cool, number one. And also, it's just counterproductive. It's it's not going to help you.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I have a tradition on this podcast that's started now where the the person who I just interviewed asks a question for. Current interviewee. So, Um, like,
1: I'm asking. Oh, so I. Oh,
0: I have a question for you from the last interviewee. Gotcha. Cool. So, (laughs) Paul Cantrell, who I just interviewed. Hello, Paul. (laughs) Uh, he was asking, "Where do you start your piece? Do you start at the beginning? That's a really good question. The end. Start somewhere in the middle. Or how? Yeah.
1: Am I gonna? Am I gonna contribute a, a question to the next person?
0: Yes, you are. Man, so. mine
1: is not going to be that good. That's a great question, <laughs> yeah. actually. Um, you thought about it for a
0: while. Yeah, God, that's good.
1: Um, I can give you something that I learned from Danny, actually, uh, a concrete thing, other than saying mm. like, "Oh my God, he's amazing." Uh, <laughs> I'd like to start at the end, if possible. Mm. This is actually a really big In, subject. Is this um, if we're talking film about, score, yeah, or let, let's just narrow it down to scores? Um, okay. What I did on dead metaphors uh well first i did something kind of in the middle just like as a demo to give them an idea of what i was gonna do with the whole score um but that that cue actually ended up not sticking but the first actual cue that i wrote was the very last one i've done that a couple times and i like the idea of starting there because it gives you some place to go It's a thing that I also, you know, took from John Williams, uh, when he, during the ET score, um, he never actually plays the full theme up until the kid is on the bike and like, you know, the, the whole, like when everything comes together at the end, that's when he plays that main theme. It hits you so much harder for that reason, because, You know, it's been giving you little hints. It's the whole movie for like an hour and a half. It's been going and this and here's this little part and there's that. And it's just like peppering in these little foreshadows of what's to come. And so by the time it hits you, it's something that you're familiar with. Like if it was just a piece of music that just, you know, suddenly comes out of nowhere and you've never heard it before, it wouldn't hit you as hard. And then the the Danny Elfman lesson of this whole thing is uh, he doesn't necessarily start at the end, and of course, again, this is not like he does this every time or anything. But the thing that he likes to do, um, I know that he did on Spider Man, is try and find a scene that is you know somewhat near the end and kind of encapsulates what the score is going to be about. So, I mean, if you think about like the standard three act arc. That's going to be the climax someplace kind of near the end. So with, uh, dead metaphors, I, I did the last cue first. And so it gave me a point to arrive at. And it also gave me material to draw from that I could then set up to be paid off. And, it, and again, this typically works best when you have a film that has a arc where something is being paid off at the end. Not every movie is like that, but when you have some sort of release or closure or something, that's when this works best. It's kind of like <laughs> this is the dumbest possible way that I could describe this um but when Pokemon evolve, <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> like going from like Charmander to whatever comes after Charmander. you know it's like it's the same basic thing, but it's new. That's that's the best <laughs> metaphor, I've, it's dead metaphor I've heard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to actually answer the question, which is like for a piece, and in this case that'd be like a cue. Uh, there's no real answer. You kind of just go and like hope that it works out. I guess. I mean, yeah. Um, it, actually, an even better answer would be it doesn't matter because you're gonna do so many revisions.
0: Yeah. I just finished up writing music for a play. Oh, cool. Um, like, as underscoring, kind of. Nice. And I started with this theme that I thought would be great at the end and everything was going to build up to it. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, after seeing the first run through, that the play actually, like, disintegrates at the end. It's kind of this weird modernist play. Oh, yeah. So, my theme that was so perfect, I ended up throwing out because instead I had to take a theme from before and like distort it completely by yeah. the end, so well, yeah, but was it
1: was it cooler than what you had originally come up with
0: though uh it was yeah, yeah. the the yeah. other piece worked as a piece on its own, but right,
1: and that's to to talk about things that uh emerging composers should think about um that's a really important distinction to make is working as a piece on its own and working within the context of the play or the film or whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: What's your question for the next oh, God. guest?
1: Um, how did you come up with the main theme for the last thing that you wrote? Ooh, that's yeah.
0: good. Uh, I don't know if you've also noticed our other tradition on this podcast is that I challenge someone to come up with their intro theme music for their episode (laughs) and i know you have a guitar right there okay um how would you feel about doing a little intro theme
1: um improvise something right now yeah oh man let's see Thank yeah. you.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Alex Ruger. For more of his music, visit alexruger.com, spelled R-U-G-E-R. To see his rescored film scenes, visit vimeo.com slash alexruger. And I have a link to his four-hour podcast episode that we talked about at composerquest.com alex. Now, time for a little segment I haven't done in a while. I thought I'd share a little music I wrote for the play Ghost Sonata, produced by Nimbus Theatre here in Minneapolis. Like I mentioned in my talk with Alex, my original plan was to have everything build up to a single heartbreaking theme. But after seeing the run-through, I realized I would have to throw out this idea since Act 3 ended in a much more disturbing and inconclusive mood. The director suggested I begin Act 3 with something Debussy-like, since it starts as a naive romantic conversation, then transition to something like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, as the main character starts to go insane. Sounded like fun to me. As a music theory side note, one thing Debussy used a lot is parallel voice leading, which means all voices move together in the same direction. So, you basically keep the same chord shape from one chord to the next. It's really easy to play on piano, too, especially when you're in the key of C like me. So, I made a simple melody out of a string of first inversion chords, which, to my ear, have a little more character than a root position chord. Plus, by being an inverted triad, you avoid parallel fifths. So, here's part of my theme for the beginning of Act 3. Act 3, the main character starts to go crazy and literally tears down the walls on stage. So to complement this dark and unsettling mood, I started with a simple minor arpeggio. I asked you to marry me! I then bring in the same Debussy-like melody, but this time the chords are completely dissonant and grating against the minor undercurrent. You said, you said beautiful things you played the whole game. While I was writing this piece, I realized it was the first time I felt like I had a solid method for using dissonance. I wasn't analyzing it from a music theory standpoint to figure out what pitches I should use, but I was instinctively selecting notes that sounded like the right kind of dissonance. I started thinking about how dissonant music can be just as controlled and orderly as consonant music, even though we usually think of dissonant music as random and wild. Just some food for thought. Uh, anyways, thanks for listening to this rant, and I'll leave you with some more of this distant cue from Ghost Sonata called Poison.